Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join HealthBird community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times. You know, in fact, he's taking companies public acquisitions, you know, many of them on the buy side or on the sell side. So we're going to be we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, and very inspiring his journey. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Amar Goel. Welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Um, looking forward to the conversation, Alejandro. So originally born in the Bay Area, one, one, one of those Silicon Valley kids. So tell us about, you know, how was life growing up there? Yeah, um, it's most most people are like kind of transplants to the Bay Area. I, I grew up here. I was born here. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny. One of my friends told me, asked me one time, like he said, how do you like, like to start companies? Like, and I said, I don't know, I just do. And then he was like, man, it's in the water there. Like that's, he's like, I grew up in Minneapolis. So, you know, he, he was like, it's a totally different place. Yeah. I mean, it's very much every day. The newspaper was about, this is in the 90, 80s and 90s. So Silicon Valley was like a different place then in the sense of uh, more counterculture, a little bit, definitely smaller, you know, raising $3 million was a lot of money or something. But yeah, I mean, I remember in the 90s as I was in high school and going to go to college, like, you know, companies like Yahoo and stuff like that were kind of starting to pop up. But yeah, it was just, you know, it was a nice, you know, kind of, I guess, typical American kind of childhood, middle-class family, uh, you know, great parents. I had one, bro- I had one brother, but um, yeah, I think it was just always t- 
tech was kind of in the, my parents worked in tech companies. My mom worked at Hewlett Packard, which was started in a garage. Um, so it was, it, was, it was kind of in the water. Well, I'm sure that it was quite inspiring for you to um, be the child of immigrant parents too, that went there to, to the U.S. to give you guys a, a better life, a better future. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that was very inspiring. And, and one of the things behind, I'm sure, you know, your drive and something that has shaped who you are today. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I mean, my parents, you know, came here, I think in some, some ways typical, but you know, every, I think each one's unique, but yeah, came here with a hundred bucks and, uh, my dad came here for, uh, kind of a graduate education. And then, you know, my mom came a few years later and yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I think this kind of distilled those immigrant kind of, like you said, values in you around just hard work and a lot of focus on school and education and just, working your butt off, basically, which I think is very core to who I am. Now, in your case, you know, you had you had it in you early on. I mean, whether it was selling eggs from chickens, flowers at restaurants, you kind of like had that in you. I mean, would you say that this is something that, uh, that you were born with or something that it developed over time? Yeah, I think, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, but yeah, from a very early age, I really was always kind of, trying to be an entrepreneur. And um, I mean, I did a lot of started a lot of businesses, at least in the planning and stages and on paper. So you were kind of mentioning like I, we kind of moved into like a little bit of a rural area. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to build a chicken coop, and I'm going to grow fresh eggs and offer them to the neighbors and stuff. I never did. it. I never bought a chicken. I never bought any wood to build the coop, but I was going to. Uh, then like, you know, I was going to start an SAT course and put up flyers for that, but you know, none of the, nobody signed up, <laughs> you know, it's funny. My brother is also an entrepreneur and, uh, worked with him, on uh, uh, the company to public thematic, but, um, you know, he wasn't into those things at all, you know? So, um, uh, I think it can come at different stages of, of life, but for me, it's always been, uh, a big part of who I am. I have two boys now who are pretty young and one of them is my my parents say he's like me the 10x, you know, he's got all these Pokemon cards he's selling and trades like I got this thing for a buck and I sold it for a hundred. <laughs> like how did you do that? Um and then my other son, you know, not so much into it, you know. That's amazing. Now you ended up going to Harvard. So I'm sure that thing that made your parents very proud uh, to go to one of the best, if not the best university you know in the world not just in the u.s but um, but but in this case for you the first year was a little bit tough why was it tough yeah you know i um i i think i kind of went in there and was like oh i'm gonna kick ass and take names and i i remember first semester freshman year i I, w- I always wanted to be a doctor growing up. I had it uh, kind of, even though I'd been this entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur, I had this little nameplate on my uh, door that my you know parents got me that said chief neurosurgeon. And I always really wanted to be a doctor. And um, so I got to, to, to Harvard and first semester, I signed up for all, like normally you take four classes there. I said, oh, I'm going to do five. So I took five classes. I took like, or I was going to take organic chemistry and I was going to take, which is like this kind of advanced class. And then I was going to take uh, this advanced math class. And I just got crushed, you know, um, I ended up dropping one of the classes and I really kind of had this crisis of confidence. And I said, well, I guess maybe in high school, I was like a bit of a big fish in a small pond, but 
not everybody can be a big fish, you know, in the big pond. And so I was kind of like, oh, I guess I'll just kind of be a mediocre person, you know, and that's kind of like my lot in life, if you will. And I, I'm not exactly sure. Like, I think just I started doing okay in my classes uh, and just kind of kept at it. And then um, kind of realized like, hey, I, I like to work hard and that's, you know, something I'm good at. And, you know, and I'm not as bad as I thought when I got here. Not as dumb as I thought. As I, got. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy, but, I, you know, I don't think I'm the dumbest guy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I just ended up, kind of keeping at it and you know ended up in four years graduating with a master's degree and uh in computer science and a bachelor's degree in economics so you know i i kind of i think i did okay and why the blend of both uh amar why the blend of business and computer science how did that come about you know i think i've always been like just a curious person like i'm just interested in a, a bunch of stuff you know i i actually um uh, wanted to write at the Harvard Crimson, which is the newspaper, the daily newspaper there. But I was also interested in business. So I, I was one of like very few people who actually kind of, they have like a process called the comp where you are kind of are uh, trying to become part of the, edit, you know, the, the newspaper staff, trying to become part of the business staff. I was one of the only people that did both. Um, and I think it's similar, like in, you know, I was really interested in computer science. I was really interested in business. Um, uh, so I think I just kind of like, I've always kind of had a broad interest and, uh, maybe like some whirling dervish aspect to that, you know? So tell us about entering the world of entrepreneurship, your first company, which you literally started, you know, out of school, chip shot. So that, how did that come about? And. And how was that process of convincing the dads of some of your, you know, classmates there, you know, to 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 not go to Goldman Sachs and and be in a garage, you know, just 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 pushing sales. Yeah, I actually started that company when I was in college. So I I I, I played. Uh, I was really into golf. Played golf. I I played golf in college, and um, my the summer after my freshman year of school. Um, this is summer '95. I was kind of thinking, "Oh, this internet thing is kind of interesting." Again, it was really early days, as far as I can tell. We were like the second, you know, uh, this like the second one of this uh, second e golf e-commerce thing to start on the on the internet. And so I, I, I ended up working with a couple of buddies from high school and teamed up with a golf pro, and we launched this golf shop. Super, you know archaic like just like html like a cgi form like just super basic but at the time it was like cutting edge right and so people would send in an order and i would get a little form and you know would process the order uh uh manually yeah so i started doing that and i you know my mom would say oh maybe you can raise some venture capital for this one day and i, I was kind of like mom this is like this crappy little golf website like they're i'm in college like who's gonna be interested in this you know um, and I remember kind of junior year, I negotiated, you know, AOL was like the hottest thing on the planet, right? And they had this, they had, you know, these stores, stores within stores, and you go to the sports store, and they had this golf thing. And I, I negotiated a deal with them where, you know, we were going to be like one of the tiles, you know, in the sports store, like the golf tiles. And I remember telling one of my buddies, I was like, oh my God, we're going to do like hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. This is going to be amazing. Of course, none of those things ever really work out. And it didn't, you know, nothing really came of it. But, um, 
but yeah, it was just kind of a, you know, interesting journey. I remember like I was always lugging my laptop around everywhere because I had to answer customer support emails and uh, process orders or, or whatever. And then when I was graduating, you know, I, I talked to, I was really interested in like, I was talking to consulting companies like McKinsey and Banks at Goldman. And then also um, uh, had an offer from Oracle and some other software companies, but just decided to, uh, I thought, you know, it was luckily it was a really good job environment. This is 98. And so I just said, you know, I think I'm going to do chip shot. And it really kind of took off my senior year. Um, I kind of rewrote the website with one of my, one of my, buddies in college who was a much better programmer than I was and we kind of built this whole custom fi- configuration thing that we were getting a file for a patent for and we went from like $8,000 a month in January of my senior year of sales of golf equipment custom built golf equipment to 100000 a month by June when we graduated and so I convinced a couple of buddies um, to join one of them was on the golf team with me one of them was like uh, a computer science buddy much smarter than me and um, uh, both of them, you know, kind of convinced them that, Hey, let's bungee join, join up with me and live in my house. And we worked out in my garage. My parents couldn't park their cars in the garage for a while. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we started doing it. And yeah, when I remember my, my friend, Nick, um, he, um, he runs an amazing company now called Gainsight, kind of the founder of the customer success movement, but he is, his dad was. Like, what are you doing, man? Nick's going to go work at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs. Um, like, what? <laughs> He's going to make them like $1,000 a month. Like, my son just graduated from Harvard. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're killing his career. You're killing him. You're killing me, you know? Indian parents are not, like, too excited about these things, you know? Um, oh yeah somehow convinced him you know and uh yeah anyways the rest is history but hey you 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 guys ended up raising you know capital from sequoia i mean now probably the number one vc that i can think of uh and um, that ended up uh, you know exploding you know on the positive side and then also on the negative side so so what happened yeah i mean it was it was kind of a crazy ride i mean a couple fun stories um we uh, so graduated right in June of '98, and um, I had worked a couple summers before for a guy named Russ Silvestri, who was a partner at Robertson Stevens, which was one of the big, you know, kind of tech investment banks. So he happened to be in New Jersey. Uh, I was hanging at my wife's from New Jersey. Uh, my my girlfriend at the time was in New Jersey. We were hanging around there, and he was there. And I walked around a Payless shoe store with him because he was like, I mean, I hear at a wedding, I had to buy some shoes for this, for my suit. I forgot my shoes. And he negotiated, like he was going to invest $50,000 as a, like an angel investment, um, you know, into, into, into uh, chip shot. I forget the valuation now, probably like a million dollars or something. And then um, one of my a friend I kind of grew up with was a lawyer. And he said, Oh, I know some lawyers at Wilson Sonsini. So he like, emailed one of them and I got to be friends with one of them. He said, Oh, we'll do your law, legal work for free, you know, until you raise some money. And I was like, what? Like, who's going to work for us for free? You know, we're like this crappy little startup, you know? And my parents were like, must be a scam. Like, you know, there's no way that a real lawyer would like do this work for free. Um, and we ended up meeting this senior partner there, Art. And he said, do you have a business plan? And so we wrote up like this hundred page business plan in paper, like we printed it out. It was spiral bound. 
And then he mailed, he said, give me four copies. And he mailed it out to people. Um, and I got a call. Like, and I, you know, then uh, we had gotten some office space by that time. It was a few months later. I got a call on the phone from Don, Don Valentine. Like, literally, I pick up the phone. He's like, hi, this is Don Valentine from Sequoia. I got your business plan. It's pretty good. Um, we, you know, are you looking to raise money? We'd like to meet up. Um, and so it was kind of like a surreal, you know, kind of, kind of moment. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then we, we ended up, you know, kind of raising some money from them and, um, you know, incredible set of investors and, um, um, and then, yeah, I mean, look, the company's growing fast. I learned a lot of lessons. We burned a lot of money too. You know, I mean, I think really it was, it was, it was an era where people were spending like crazy. Um, and I, you know, also bought into that and was almost proud of how high our burn was. And I think that, you know, we ended up going, you know, we ended up getting close to going public, but ended up going bankrupt basically in 2000 as the NASDAQ kind of came crashing down. And I think that really, uh, left a lot of, you know, learnings with me, you know, as, as, um, what was one that you, what was one lesson there that you took away with you? You know, raising capital and burn are like not things to celebrate, you know? I mean, they're not, they're good milestones, but like, I think a lot of people get wrapped up, like I've raised all this money and, and I think that's not like really business building, you know, business building looks like revenue and profits and customers, you know, and, and that is really what drives, you know, the long-term value. If I then fast forward to like Pomatic, which I'm sure will come to later, but you know, that company, we had going public. I mean, we raised $64 million in all. And when we went public, we had $75 million already in the bank. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Well, well, let's talk about this one then, because, you know, obviously after, you know, the, the 
basically the rodeo with chip shots, you know, got, came to an end. You know, you did a little bit of, um, of a stunt there at a Microsoft doing enterprise sales. But then you decide that it's time to pack up the bags and go to India to start not one, but two companies. I mean, why going to India? What, what triggered that? You know, that was really um, kind of more of a life thing. So I was living in New York at the time. I moved to New York. My wife was in New York. We'd been married a few years. And uh, we just kind of thought, hey, life in New York is great. I and mean, we love it here, but it's comfortable. Let's go live somewhere else. Let's go try something else out. And we thought about moving to Europe. Um, and this was 2005, 2006. And we just thought, God, there's so much going on in India. You know, brick was kind of like all the rage a little bit. and we thought, you know, we're both Indian. I mean, I was born in the U.S. My wife's born in New York. I was born in California, like we talked about. But, you know, we're of Indian descent. And we just thought, oh, you know, there's so much going on in India. It's a chance to, like, get closer to, like, you know, kind of that cultural heritage. And so let's let's move to India. And, and then I started thinking about, like, well, what could I do in India? And, you know, Pubmatic was more of a global, you know, company where we help kind of this new form of advertising, which became programmatic advertising, like um, digital advertising being traded via APIs and helping kind of establish a whole supply chain for that and software for that. But that was a global thing. And then Gomli was the other company I started, and that was really more of a buy-side ad tech company focused on Asia. Um, and started with a focus on India and then expanded over time to Southeast Asia and Australia and stuff. And um, so, yeah, we just thought, hey, there's so much going on in India. This would be a great kind of life adventure. Um, and I actually told my wife then, oh, I came up now with this idea for Pomatic and that's more global so we could stay in the U.S. And she was like, no, no, you got me excited about moving to India. We're moving to India. So you figure out what you're going to do over there, but we're going. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so, so with Pomatic, you know, it sounds like you were saying quite the journey. Um, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model there? How are you guys making money with Pomatic? Yeah, yeah. So Pomatic, what we what we did was we really started like a NASDAQ kind of at exchange, like as you think about it, like a stock market exchange, but for digital advertising. So we started by helping large publishers, uh, you know, like, well, we didn't start with large publishers, we started with small publishers, but it became with large publishers like, like a Yahoo, like the New York Times. And we helped them onboard their inventory or in mobile app or in CTV, like Pluto or, you know, Fubo TV or whatever. We helped them onboard their inventory and make and auction it off in real time to, you know, hundreds of thousands of advertisers around the world. And so we provide this kind of advertising exchange that, you know, today processes, you know, over 500 billion ad auctions a day in real time, all within a hundred milliseconds, generates, you know, five plus petabytes of data a day, thousands of servers around the world. And, and, you know, now we're really focused on trying to, you know, become the, supply chain provide the sort of digital complete supply chain of the future where you know buyers and sellers can connect efficiently and, and trade their you know buy and sell advertising. Um, and so that company is you know spread around the world. I mean headquartered in the Bay Area but global um, 900 employees you know went was fortunate enough to go public on the Nasdaq exchange um, you know in 2000. What was that what was that process like? Because you know with the previous company you you were you know Almost there on the finish line, but uh, you were not able to ring the bell. What was going through your head when finally this time around, you know, you were right there, you know, ringing the bell and and making it happen? Yeah. So two things. So that with Chip Shot, which I also did with my brother um, and Nick, um, 
we were filing our S1 in 2020. And then 20 years later, we went public, actually went public. So we actually didn't ring the bell because it was during COVID. Um, and so it was kind of crazy. Like, you know, first we were going to go there, then they were going to like ship the podium out. I don't know if you remember, but in 2020, 21, lots of companies were public and they would set up like a virtual podium or they would have a podium. Yeah, I remember. Local thing. Yeah. And so it ended up being totally remote. Um, and so, uh, my brother's the CEO, Regine's the CEO. And so he, you know, he was doing the whole, the roadshow from his desk, if you will. Um, but it was, it was amazing still. It was surreal. I mean, I was like sitting on the couch in the, you know, at home with the kids and my parents and, you know, watching kind of the, the NASDAQ provided this, this really cool thing where, um, you could see the order book building and then, you know, we went public at 20 bucks a share, but we opened at, I think like $29.50, $29.50, which was, you know, incredible. I mean, I told myself, doesn't matter if we go to $10 a share, like, this is an accomplishment that I'm, you know, I, I'm, it's, it's amazing and, you know, we're going to feel good about it, but certainly nice that it also went way up, you know, the first day. Um, That's amazing. Was, yeah. That might be unbelievable. It's an experience. Now, with, um, with, I mean, with this company at the peak, it reached $4 billion, uh on market cap. And then also Comly Media. And right now, you know, Pubmatic, you know, it has close to 1,000 employees. So whatever happened with Comly Media? Yeah, I mean, that would be kind of one of the, you know, ended up selling the company, but it wasn't, you know, some great, you know, exit for sure. And we, you know, we, we got to about 50 million in revenue there, uh, kind of break even ish. Uh, but, you know, digital advertising has gone through its real ups and downs over the last 10, 15 years. You know, um, we've got a few really big players like Google and Facebook. And so investors have been very kind of squeamish about the space. And so, you know, Comly, we ended up selling it to um, a big Malaysian telco um, company uh, that was trying to build a digital advertising business. A lot of telcos have kind of looked, maybe you know, AT&T and Singtel and a lot of uh, uh, telcos have looked at using their user assets to, to build digital advertising businesses. But it was it was not the exit that we all, you know, hoped for, for sure. And again, another, you know, set of learnings where we just, you know, raised a lot of capital and um, uh, not built like a self-sustaining enough business. Now, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. 2021, a new baby comes knocking. Yeah, yeah. So I started a new company. Um, it's called Bitto, and we're bringing like AI tools for, uh, we're creating AI tools for software developers. We have an AI assistant that kind of works in the in your IDE, the tools that the developers use. And um, yeah, started in 2020. Actually, we were doing something else. We were focused on collaboration tools for software developers. We were trying to bring Slack and Google Docs type experience to developers' um, IDE. And um, you know, everyone would say, "Look at the demo and be like, this is amazing. I'm going to use it.'" And then they wouldn't use it. But we really, so we were like, "All right, what do we do?" So we kept kind of listening to our users and hearing what they wanted and how we could tweak the product. We started, you know, messing around with some of the large language models, AI, last in 2021, sorry, 2022. And um, yeah, then we launched kind of this next generation of Bitto um, late last year. Um, and, you know, you can use it to ex write code, explain code. You can use it to document all your code, write test cases. And it's, you know, knock on wood, it's, you know, it's early days still, but it's going well. I mean, we have over 100,000 developers around the world who are actively using it. They 
they do more than a million AI requests a week into our system. Um, we, we can understand your entire code base and let you do AI on that. So yeah, I mean, look at it's early days, small team, 20 people, but you know, we're trying to, trying to be capital efficient, but we think there's, you know, incredible opportunity to help software developers over the next 10 years. And it sounds like a product market fit is one of your superpowers. Um, it's actually one of the most difficult things. So how should entrepreneurs think about product market fit? How, how do you get there, you know, in, a, in an effective way? You know, Mike Moritz, this f- famous venture capitalist, you know, I, I remember, um, uh, you know, people would ask him like, oh, what is, you know, how are you such an amazing VC? And he would say, um, you know, I just really walk into every situation with a pen and a pad and I listen, you know, and I used to think like, God, that sounds like such a bunch of horseshit, you know, but, but I think there's some real insight there, you know, which is like really try to listen to people and like remove your ego, like remove how you want the world to work and really listen to like what that person, that customer is kind of telling you about how the world works. Now, that being said, you know, I don't think customers always know what the future looks like, right? I mean, if you ask them, you know, I think there's a thing that Henry Ford would have said, you know, said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, what, what they would have wanted, they would have said they wanted faster horses, you know? Um, so I think you have to have a perspective about how the world could work. Um, but then you have to kind of hold that loosely and you have to really go and talk to people and try to really understand, you know, you can use multiple frameworks, but try to understand that core problem or the job to be done. And then really like, how does your solution really kind of help solve that problem? I think, like I said, the other things that you've got to, um, you've got to be, you know, hold, you know, be careful about your ego and really be willing to iterate um, and, and be open to iterating and not kind of stuck into what you, what your view of the future is. And then I think the last thing I would say is that I think you have to be really capital efficient. You know, I think I've seen a lot of startups and I've been involved with startups where you, they're so committed to their view of what the, what the solution is going to be that they don't really give themselves any room from a, from a capital standpoint. Like they're kind of like, Hey, if this doesn't work, I, I don't have any more money, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have enough money in the bank to, to pivot or to iterate or whatever, you know? And so you really have to make sure you have, you keep your burn low. Um, and because you should assume that it's going to take a couple of t- iterations to get to something that actually is product market fit. I think a large, a large part of being successful is still being alive. You know, if you can just, if you're, if you're, I think you have a group of people that's hardworking, committed and smart, you know, that's true. I think sometimes you just give yourself enough time, you will iterate yourself into something. And then you just have to decide when you do iterate yourself into something, am I happy enough with this? Is this a good enough business? You know, uh, does it have enough of the characteristics I was looking for? And, or do I want to keep iterating on? But that sometimes that can take a couple of years. It took a couple of years for us. And so if we had just said, Oh, the first thing, collaboration is going to be big and, you know, kind of spend all of our money, then we would have run out. We would have been dead, dead in the water. And so you got to keep your burn low. So I guess one of the things that uh, that I'm thinking now as, as you know, you're building Bido, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world 
where the vision for Vito is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, I haven't thought about that. I mean, that would be an amazing world. I mean, I think uh, that world is a world where software can be built at the speed of thought, you know, and uh, developers can really build. We've got a huge unlock in how much software can be created in the world because they're leveraging AI to really help them you know, work at 10, 20, 50 times the pace that they, that they work today. Uh, and so, you know, we talk about software kind of eating the world. I think we haven't really seen anything yet. You know, the acceleration that's about to come in so many fields is incredible. Absolutely. Now, I've been asking you here about the future. I want to ask you about the past, but doing it with a lens of reflection. Imagine... I was to bring you back in time. I put you into a time machine and I bring you back to the moment where you were in Harvard and you were now thinking about what you were going to do. Huh? And you had the opportunity of going there right now and having a chat with your younger self where you have the opportunity of giving that younger Amar one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? One of the things I mentioned earlier, um, I think I, I was, I've become more, hopefully, I, I hope that I've become more humble, you know, as I've gone on in my life. And I sort of feel like the older I get, the more I realize, you know, the less I really know and understand, you know. And so I think I, I, I feel that as, as a, my younger self, was, I was more arrogant, you know, person. And so I think one is to kind of release that arrogance. Like being more present, you know, is kind of one way of putting about it. That's, I think, the, the best way of doing it. But I think the connection, the, the point I want to make is that having less expectations about, about the future in some ways, you know, about um, not when you have a lot of expectations about something and it doesn't work out, that creates a lot of anger um, in your, in yourself, you know, because you're not happy with kind of how things happen. And so I, I don't think I could say to myself, don't be, driven don't try to achieve something i'm not trying to say don't have that you know goal but i think it's to you know approach every situation with less expectations and so i think then you're more open to what's happening and you can accept it better and you're able to leverage it better you know because you're not angry you're dealing with the situation as you have it I think you learn some of these things when you have kids. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, I don't know if you have kids, but you know they're they're a good wake up call for you every day. Except kids, you know, they are like startups, but there is no exit, and you only break even where they let you sleep at night. So uh, <laughs> thank God I'm past the break even point now. Yeah. But um, but anyhow, Amar, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to to do so? Yeah, I mean, you can reach me on Twitter, you can DM me, you can reach me on LinkedIn, um, email me, amr.goyal at bido.ai. Um, yeah, I'm happy to, happy to chat and help. And uh, um, yeah, interested in other people's stories too. Amazing. Well, hey, Amar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, uh, love listening to your podcast. So thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, 
share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.